Hello, hello. Welcome to Disruptive Conversations. My name is Sarah Ruth, and I am here and creating this podcast because I want to open conversations. Right now, you see a polarization of beliefs and perspectives. You see people who get online and yell at each other. There is propaganda on all sides. There are studies that actually suggest that the United States is more divided than ever because of social media. And we have these sounding chambers. So people, uh, we really don't see the nuances of perspective and values and people are more heated. So you see what happens online. Memes are a huge issue. You have people sharing tidbits of information. You see these snags of pieces of information added onto a meme and then shared without being confirmed. How can we come to real solutions? We need to be able to talk to each other. We need to be able to see each other's perspectives. My goal is to interview guests with all different types of perspectives and have conversations that bring new perspectives and addresses the nuances of these different perspectives. I'm always looking for feedback and questions. That's part of the reason why I'm having this show is because I want us to be able to have ongoing conversations. I want to hear from you. I want to connect with you. You can follow me at Powerful Priestess on Instagram. So let's get to it. On today's episode, we will be speaking with the police officer that we interviewed in the previous episode. We are going to be talking about police reform. We are reviewing recommendations from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, IACP, in regards to police reform. We have different points that we review, and this will be split into two separate episodes. I believe that we need police reform. We are always going to have a need for police officers. Unfortunately, there are bad things that happen in this world, and we are going to need police officers to handle those situations. There are also opportunities for more services to be worked into policing, such as having more social workers available for de-escalation, having healthcare workers and social workers to deal with some of the domestic disputes, to deal with some of rape cases, things like that. I do believe in reallocating funds to provide more services for people, as well as reforming the police force, including some of the points that we talk about today. Would you mind Mm -hmm. explaining a little bit about what it is and who they are, and then we can go into the different points and your thoughts on them. Yeah, so this is the IACP, is the International Association of Chiefs of Police. It's a mouthful. Is mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. tens of thousands of members. Almost every country in the United States have members of this organization. It's a nonprofit. It's been around since the late 1800s. Um, but basically, there are about advancing leadership and professionalism in, in policing worldwide. But basically, it's, it's a professional organization for leaders or soon-to-be leaders within law enforcement, and they probably work in the space of lobbying and trying to convince uh, policymakers to go one way or the other, advocating 
for reform. And that's essentially what this blog that I sent you, which I thought was interesting because, you know, we can talk all day about where I work, um, but where I work doesn't apply to Alabama, New York, Minnesota. The department that I work for could be perfect when it comes to policy and risk management and, and reasonable, but it doesn't matter because when you come and visit my town and you see me, you perceive me like, say you're from Tampa, Florida. You perceive me like, oh, the officers I dealt with in Tampa, Florida. You know, this guy here in, in, in the city, he's the same thing and he follows the same rules, but no, we're, we're completely different. Yeah. There's videos and things I see done in other states and that I'm like, there's, I wouldn't even contemplate. That wouldn't even be an <laughs> option in my mind. Yeah. But there's no national standard, right? And that's why we see discrepancies and differences of, among what police do or don't do. So this article talks about national standards, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And this is what's being proposed by them as what needs to be passed as national standards through and added to law. We can go through these different bullet points and then I would love to hear what you think about them. So this first one is adopting the national consensus policy on use of force. So that makes it clear that policy of law enforcement agency is to value and preserve human life. They should develop policies and training practices that focus on de-escalation and application of force only when necessary. This policy also makes clear that an officer has a duty to intervene to prevent or stop the use of excessive force by another officer and addresses the issues of chokeholds and vascular neck restraints. Where I work, we already do this, but that's why this is a national move. Not every agency does this. You know, maybe it's not that, the, maybe an agency, it's not that they don't, they say that you, you can't deescalate a situation, but if it's not in your policy, you should try to, or that you have training to do so, right? Because if it's in policy, says you must do X, Y, Z, or should, or should try to do this. If I'm not trained on it then, and I don't do it, and then you fire me, well, I could easily say, well, you're expecting me to do something I was never taught how to do appropriately. Uh -huh. uh -huh. So, right, so de-escalation makes sense. Who can, who can make a rational argument of why we shouldn't, as police, de-escalate when possible? But it's not the case for all organizations. Or a duty to intervene, right? An officer has a duty to intervene to prevent an officer from doing something they shouldn't do, right? Not all agencies have that. It, it, in my mind, wild, like it is because of where I come from and, and the organizations I'm affiliated with, with that standard, but it's not everywhere. Um, and then this even talks about chokeholds and vascular neck restraints. Um, and that a lot of that came from the George Floyd or the Eric Garner cases and the different things that we've seen in, in the media about neck restraints. California, after George Floyd, over the summer, this police officer standards and training, which is post, California Post, they um, decertified all police officers in the state of California from using neck restraints. This came about from, you know, the, the political movement over, over last year, which if trained and, and, and done properly, vascular neck restraints are not deadly. They're less lethal, 100% uses of force. Um, but the this gets back to our earlier conversation of the national narrative and what people believe and perceive that neck restraints are deadly and they, they aren't when done properly. Uh -huh. So the state of California decertified everybody. So that is like, it's equivalent of like taking a taser off my belt, taking um, pepper spray, 
taking a baton. These are all less lethal, right? They can, and they can cause injury at some level and in some ways, no injury, um, but discomfort, pain compliance. But a neck restraint when done properly is not lethal. But it's, so it's like, like I said, the equivalent of taking it away, but because of the narrative and the lack of training in many organizations, yeah. it was like, okay, we, we better take away, like if I compared it to a taser. Well, the taser has been misused so much that we're just going to take it away because you're not using it right. But what are the unintended consequences? And that's what I wanted, wanted to get to is like, okay, I have one less option, which means more likelihood that I go to or the force escalates to potentially lethal, mm-hmm. whether for me or for somebody else. Yeah. But that's where we're at. What would that training look like? For uh, like neck restraints or, or? Yeah. Yeah. You say, you know, training is needed. So, I mean, if you were going to train somebody on doing that properly, yeah. I feel like that would take a lot of training and very specific training. The use of force is regulated in the state of California and in every state by some kind of border commission in California, it's post. So in California post mandates specific things that officers should be well-versed in. And especially obviously when it comes to use of force. So in California post says you should have X amount of hours uh, when it comes to use of force specifically of training. And they do it every two years. So within mm-hmm. two years, I, I personally have to do certain amount of hours, what would your guess be when it comes to use of force? And this ranges for everything from batons, punching, kicking, shooting, right? Everything you can think of use of force, police, any option. Um, Not only that, but policy, legal updates. How many hours do you think I am mandated to buy state? Five hours. Oh, you're actually pretty close. (laughs) Most people ask that question. Well, you're actually pretty close. Most people ask, like, they give me a, like a, a ridiculously high number. Yeah, not high, but like higher than than what it should be. It's four hours. Oh, yeah. Um, it's four hours. I've asked people that. I've gotten like 50, 60 hours, but four hours. Think about that, right? So every, you know, I have a baton, I have a taser, I have pepper spray, I have a gun, I have. I'm actually trained in other restraint devices. I have a hobble. I have. I don't know what a uh, hobble is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't like using the word, but the best way to describe it, because people can get an idea, it's like hog tying someone. Oh. It's not necessarily hog tying, but it's restraining somebody's feet. Right, okay. When they're okay. <laughs> um, so there's all these, each, and again, each department has different types of tools they can use. Mm-hmm. But the standard ones are obviously pepper spray, baton, taser, gun, right? Those are the standards. And then you have... Hobble, hobble. hobble. Yeah. It's called, a, it's called, a, it's called a, a rip hobble is what they call rip it. Hobble. And that's to keep, it's to keep somebody from kicking you when okay. you have them in custody. Which is, which is um, um, cool. I mean, right. Nobody wants to be kicked. So that's understandable. Yeah. Going back to four hours in the state of California. And we are like, in, to a certain extent, the state of California is one of the better trained and has some of the highest standards. Yeah. So if, if the more quote unquote progressive state, their standards four hours, and you have all those things to cover, and not only that, but legal update, case law, refreshers, all those things you got to do in four hours, and you have twenty officers sitting in the training. How much time do we actually spend doing hands-on scenarios? Yeah, that's actually definitely... doing a role play. That's where you really learn. The best yeah. learning isn't me sitting yeah. there watching a PowerPoint of you saying, "This is how you use the taser. This yeah. is how you use a baton. This is how you use pepper spray." Like you actually have to do it. But in four hours, how much do you really 
get. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like enough. Especially for people that aren't familiar or understand policing, you're right. Use of force, a lot of times, you know, we just see it as like, oh, I can't believe that cop punched that guy 10 times or whatever. But this is life and death. Use of force is when people die or potentially can die. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about just suspects or the people in the community, but I'm talking about the officer too. Yeah. So it is a, there's a, a, a lot of liability. There's a lot of risk that you need to mitigate through training. And if you have four hours, I can tell you at best, we get an hour of hands-on training out of that yeah. four. Yeah. And what quality an hour every two years are you going to get out of that? And we're asking those people that are be, being trained with only an hour with all those tools and all those options and, and every critical incident I've been in has been different. So how do you train for that in an hour when the, your life and others are lives are on the line and expect, and we're imperfect humans. There's a difference of me being six hours into a shift versus 17 hours in a shift and mm-hmm. not having a fight, mm-hmm. you know, and decision-making ability. Right. And in one hour of training every two years, I'm supposed to make a decision that, not only saves lives, mine or others or suspects, and not make front headlines, CNN, Instagram, YouTube, and not be that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say it would be helpful to have more training time allocated to the use of excessive force? Oh, 100%. A lot of the problems that we're seeing right now can be mitigated through training, increased training, especially as it comes to use of force and decision-making, that's a huge component that I think is important. A lot of guys and girls that are in the field go out of their way and get their own training. I personally pay out of pocket a significant amount. Uh, I'm fortunate and blessed to be able to do so and also motivated to do it. Not everybody is. And I pay over a hundred dollars a month out of my own pocket to train myself so that I don't become the next face yeah. that you see. And not only that, the face, but the racist, the, the whatever, insert any negative thing you hear about a police officer, which is not, in my opinion, true about myself, but could be because a, a use of force where I'm not trained properly happens um, and it looks bad, or maybe it is bad because of poor training. Yeah. And then now I am the next officer yeah. you see up, up there and I don't want to be that. Yeah. Right. Well, There's a couple of things that I want to point out, right? Is is if you're going to do these trainings, it's going to improve response, which when you're in these situations, you're going to respond, fight, flight, or freeze. And if you are doing regular training, it's going to help you shape that response as opposed to just reacting and being trigger happy or things like that. So secondly, there is this push to defund the police. But if you're wanting them to have better training and more training, you're going to actually have to invest more into your police officers. Yeah. It's a, the classic infinite needs, finite resources, right? We have this insurmountable need and not enough money, right? And, and then on the backdrop of people's thinking and believing that police have too much money and that we need to defund and invest into communities is only going to exacerbate the problem and make it more. So maybe I now, because of money issues, we go from four hours to two hours a year, or maybe, you know, might not be use of force, but there's going to be cuts somewhere. 
Yeah. Right. Because I, I know here, like for an example of the defund movement, right? LAPD, um, LA County Sheriff's, I, I believe they cut like their homeless um, outreach team and they, they, they match police officers with mental health specialists. They cut their uh, sexual assault, their special team that investigates like human trafficking. Because at the end of the day, when you call police, 911, someone's in my house, someone's shooting outside, whatever it may be, the number one priority and the number one objective of police is to respond to that 911 emergency now. Yeah. So these special teams and these special investigations, detectives, those are the things that go away mm, when, uh-huh. you, when you defund the police, right? And what stays? The bare bones, which is patrol, officers responding to radio calls, and detectives and investigations to investigate the crimes that police officers arrest for. So anything outside of that, and you hear the media or like when they talk about, oh, this is special enforcement unit for sexual assault or the special domestic violence unit, all these specialized units are, they're nice and they're needed. But at the end of the day, when you're in your house and someone just broke in and it's two in the morning, you call in one and expect an officer to be there ASAP. So when money's cut, that's the last place we're going to cut. And we're going to cut everything else to make sure we're there for the emergencies. And unfortunately, you know, people and victims suffer when you cut those other programs yeah. um, so that you can keep your training or you can keep, you know, these other things. But that's, that's the, the unintended consequences, the negative externalities, or maybe for some, they're not unintended. And that's what people intend for, which yeah. I hope not, but sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think probably I know that there's a lot of lack of education in the public about that and the real impacts that defunding the police have where people are going to say, you know, sex, I um, am involved minimally with an, uh, an organization that is fighting against sex and human trafficking. And if you remove police officers and you defund police officers, there's this growing problem and yeah, you're taking funding away from that. And no, I think everybody, if everybody knows that everybody's going to agree that that's not a good impact. So that's not a positive impact. One other thing I wanted to point out in this one is the policy also makes clear that an officer has a duty to intervene or to prevent or stop the use of excessive force by another officer. Um, I think that is something that a lot of people take issue with the police because they feel like other police officers are not holding the bad cops accountable. And so I think that's the huge issue that's been talked about that I'm seeing in, in people's concerns is that good cops are not holding bad cops accountable. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I, and I know I understand people's frustrations. And part of that, I think, is people when they see videos uh, don't understand the use of force that's going on. So someone may assume that what they're seeing should be stopped by the officer next to them. But when you understand, if you really understand use of force, not only case law, but how things actually work in the real world when you're in the fight with somebody high on meth or whatever it may be, right? Like you see it and you're like, oh, that officer should have stopped them. And in reality, like, I look at it and I'm like, no, that, that's good. But there also are those cases where it's uncalled for and it needs to be stopped. And just this week, uh, a video that went viral here in Southern California, I want to say Westminster Police Department, where uh, there was uh, a, a female in handcuffs 
from the video that I saw, I don't want to say three officers. They were, I think she was sitting on the ground. She was trying to stand up. Obviously not, they didn't want her to stand up. She's a suspect and I don't know if she's trying to run or whatnot, but the officer goes and puts her down, kind of pushes her down on the, on the grass. They were on like a little, I don't know if it was a sidewalk. There was grass, I don't know, but kind of pushed her down. Um, and as she was pushing him down, or as he was pushing her down, the other two officers were kind of helping, trying to push her shoulders down to keep her seated. Somehow she kicks up and hit, kicks the, one of the main officers. And as she does that, the officer responds. And mind you, she's handcuffed by punching her about two or three times in the face. Like full on, like this is a smaller female taking massive blows to the face yeah. um, while handcuffed, right? But uh, uh, excessive use of force under the totality of the circumstances, right? She's handcuffed. She's female. She's significantly smaller than him. And there's three officers. You can gain control without having to do that. As that's happening, the, one of the officers that was kind of standing up next to the officer shoves his partner, like literally shoves him out of the way. And the, I think the officer may even made a move to come back. I don't know if he was going to hit her or just to help restrain her. But as he makes a move to just get more involved in the situation, the officer kind of pushes him back even more. Like, no, 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 like, cool off, basically. We got this. The two officers there, they restrain her and keep her down. So that's a video, right, of an officer intervening. So it does happen. And sometimes you don't see it in a video, and maybe it's because it's actually not needed when you may think it's needed. When you actually, when there's a full comprehension of how it works, you may be like, oh, that's not needed. Because I hear people say all the time, like, oh, you should have just tased him and not shot him. Or you should have wrestled the person with the machete in their hand instead of tasing them or whatever. Like that seemed excessive. Well, if you don't, if you're not in the field, it's like, again, it's going to people saying what they think should happen versus that are untrained versus a trained person looking at it with perspective saying, no, that's good. So there's two things. It does happen. Um, it should happen. And, and it should happen more often potentially. But I can say this in my time as a police officer, I have not seen, I take that back. One time I, I saw something and when it comes to use of force where I was like, that's not good one time. And it grand scheme of things wasn't even really that bad when it comes to use of force. It was just an officer that got a little heated and took someone to the ground when he didn't need to, but it was like a full-on beating. And yeah. the officers were kind of like, hey, step back. Yeah. But in terms of like an excessive beating, excessive use of force in my time, I have not seen it. And this goes back to, and I'll end on this with this part, goes back to my, you know, who I am, where I came from. When I came into policing, having a, a liberal, liberal progressive viewpoint and a, a, a lens, looking at a lens on policing in a relatively negative way, I thought frequently I would be the person intervening and I'm pleasantly surprised, at least say where I work, I never had to do that. Yeah, that's right? great. And which is, and if it wasn't the case, I would be the first to say it, right? Yeah. But that's not that's not the case. And I, I can't speak for other organizations, but I haven't had to do it. Yeah. So. And I think one of the problems, right, is that when you have these incidences and they're not, I mean, we've seen that they're not completely isolated, right? There are multiple events that have come up, but when you have these big events that happen, it then paints, everybody assumes then that all cops are this way. It kind of, like you said, 
it agitates the relationship between citizens and police officers even more because you have these individuals who then are going to mouth off or get disrespectful to officers who then have to also, okay, I'm the professional here. I have to not get mad about it. But like you said, if you've been on a shift for 16 hours in the middle of the night, we all get cranky sometimes. I, I, I never get cranky. I'm just kidding. I get really cranky. So, um, you know, that, that officers are people. And if you have this narrative, that's agitating these relationships, then it's, that's not helpful either. So, and I think it's important for people to recognize and understand, especially those who have the training and understand psychology and, and how the mind works, right? Confirmation bias, right? The media. And from what I'm seeing and social media, the me- news media, all those things combined. And, and everything we see, it's a confirmation bias when it comes to police use of force, right? You see one bad video and then you see one once a week for the entire year. And the narrative is that all police are this way. And, and those are the only videos you see, or at least you perceive to see, or you see 15 seconds of it, then you believe it. And then you find more and more information articles, quote unquote, research that says police are one way and it confirms your, your bias. And whether yeah. you realize it or not, not everybody is educated enough or understands how research works, how the mind works, how stats work to see one video. We could see one video a week for an entire year of a legitimate bad police interaction. But that doesn't mean every police officer, every agency is bad. That would actually be good. 365 bad incidents. There's 750, 800,000 police officers, law enforcement in the United States, and you only have 365 videos. And if that, and, and say hypothetically that those are all the bad ones, they're like, oh, we're doing great. Think <laughs> about the amount of, inc- think about the yeah. millions and millions and millions of interactions and you only have 365. But in the United States today, we're seeing videos weekly, if not every other day, in some cases about police and anecdotally potentially bad. And some of them aren't even bad. They're just the narrative shapes it to be bad and everybody now believes what they believe and it confirms what they believe. Definitely. But in the grand scheme of things, in the totality of law enforcement, that's not even, even bad. If you look at it statistically, but okay. perception, right. The perception yep. would be bad. All bad. Right. Everyone right. bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone bad. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that One issue at a time, we can create world peace, at least a better world. My wish for you is for you to find peace in what can sometimes seem to be a daunting world. I hope that together we can become a nation under whatever God or no God that is indivisible with liberty, equity, and justice for all.